Welcome to Episode 3 of Aging Fast and Slow. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton and Dr. Deidre Cruz, your hosts. We have a great episode in store. In honor of March being National Kidney Month, we've decided to highlight Aging Fast and Slow's own Deidre Cruz, a nephrologist at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Cruz is the Associate Director for Research Development at the Center for Health Equity, along with many other appointments. Her core area of research addresses disparities in the care and outcomes of chronic kidney disease. She has examined the contribution of social determinants of health, including poverty and access to healthful foods, to disparities in kidney disease. Wow, it's really exciting to uh, be on the other side of, uh, <laughs> of being a host and, and uh, to switch roles today. It's great to have you. So to begin with, what does the term health inequities mean to you? Well, when I think about health inequities, for me, it's really all about fairness and justice. And if I think about health equity, right, where everyone has a fair shot at achieving their best health, when I think about health inequities, it's really all about those barriers standing Mm -hmm. in the way of someone having their best health or experiencing their best health. And really, it's when you think about it, it's a matter of justice. I mean, when we see that there are so many groups that historically have faced these sort of barriers, including racial and ethnic minorities, people with low incomes, people who live in uh, rural communities, in many cases, people living in urban communities as well, where different goods and services may be structurally um, partitioned off in in such Mm. ways that they have difficulty accessing them, um, then it really is is a matter of justice. And you have to think about, well, why is it that those Mm -hmm. things exist? And so that's what I think of when I think about Mm -hmm. health inequities. And when you say structural, do you mean partly Mm -hmm. the built environment, but partly access to things and racial discrimination and other structural components of the society? Yeah, I mean, when I think of it, I think of it quite broadly. And I think that's where the science is as well in terms of thinking about things that are physical structures, Mm -hmm. but also things that are societal and sort of cultural structures mm. that, that leave certain groups in position to be able to achieve their best health mm. and other groups in position to not. So when we think about physical structures, yes, those are, I like to think of them as goods and services that right. might be health promoting. So whether it's having access to healthy food, having full service supermarkets in communities, you know, having green spaces mm-hmm. that would promote exercise. Mm-hmm. But then there's also social structures. And around that, I mean, where certain groups are viewed in certain ways. I see Mm -hmm. those as being structural inequities as well. When people and organizations that are in power have set up structures such that certain groups experience these these sort of inequities. Yeah. Wow. That's so important. And within that, why focus on kidney inequities Mm -hmm. and kidney health inequities? Yeah. So kidney health inequities are incredibly profound. So when we look at, for example, um, African Americans in this country, the rates of kidney failure that we see are more than three times of what we see among whites. And when we look at Hispanics, it's more than 50%. And when we look at people who have low income levels compared to those who have higher income levels, their chances of developing kidney failure are twice as high. And so they are profound. That's one reason to focus on them. Another one that I don't think gets enough attention is that they're incredibly costly. So we know when we look broadly really across all health inequities, we know that 
They are incredibly costly. There was one estimate that each year the United States is spending more than 30 or so billion dollars on health inequities, meaning that if we narrowed those, that we would be able to save that amount of money. Because we would be having fewer hospitalizations and more worker exactly. productivity and those kinds of... Exactly. Uh-huh. And so in kidney disease, it becomes really important because we're sort of all in when it comes to the coverage mm-hmm. of in-stage kidney disease. So unlike most chronic conditions, if a person does develop kidney failure, they become automatically eligible for Medicare regardless of age. So even a a 20-year-old that develops kidney failure automatically becomes eligible for Medicare. So that means at a societal level, we're all invested in making sure that the care for people who Mm -hmm. develop advanced kidney disease or kidney failure is equitable and it's high quality because we are covering the cost of that. And so I think focusing on the type of care that gets delivered and, and making sure that it is both equitable and to the standard that we know is going to portend the best outcomes becomes really something that the entire public mm-hmm. here in the U.S. should be focused on. So we can prevent people from needing dialysis. Absolutely. So that we can prevent people from developing kidney failure. And then also for those who already do have advanced kidney disease Mm -hmm. or have kidney failure, making sure that they are also being well supported because one of the most costly parts about their care are the hospitalizations that many of those individuals will be required to have. Right. Wow. Well, so one thing, I've known you for a long time, and yeah. one thing I've always yeah. been so interested in is that you do both epidemiologic work mm-hmm. and intervention work, which um, I do too, and there aren't so many people who do both. Um, and can you tell us what epidemiology is and what interventions are and wh- how they can answer different scientific questions? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's one of the great things about our friendship is that we do share in these uh, types of disciplines. So when it comes to epidemiology, I usually kind of think of it, and I think most think of it as the study of disease trends in populations. Mm-hmm. So I started off my career getting trained in epidemiology and sort of the methods around tracking disease trends among different populations. I had an early interest in looking at health disparities with a particular focus on kidney disease and looking at both racial and ethnic as well as socioeconomic Mm -hmm. disparities. I think the field of epidemiology as it is applied to health disparities is one that, you know, we've known for many years, uh, I would say, you know, two, three decades at least, about many of these health disparities that exist in the United States and really indeed across the world. There have been fewer, though, individuals who have sought to develop interventions or test interventions that are addressing those disparities. Mm -hmm. In more recent years, there have been more people who are pursuing that, and it's been, I think, a really exciting time. I continue to apply what I've learned through my work in epidemiology Mm -hmm. and sort of understanding who's at greatest risk for adverse outcomes when it comes to kidney disease or even those who are at risk of developing it in the first place, to then figuring out who to target in interventions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the two kind of relate very nicely because with limited resources for conducting this type of research, it's important to, to try to go after those people where the return on the investment that's being made through the research is going to make the most sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And when you say target, you mean yeah. aim the resources and the understanding towards the, the people where it's going to matter the most? Yeah, that's the way I think of it. So meaning, for example, in my early work, one of the things that 
we were able to identify is that when we think about racial and ethnic minorities and we also look at socioeconomic status, what we found was that people who were both minorities and they had low incomes had an amplified Mm -hmm. risk of developing kidney disease, even compared to someone who was a minority but had a higher Mm -hmm. income, for example. So for me, that was elucidating in that that identified that if our work could focus on racial and ethnic minorities who had low incomes, then we could potentially really have a great impact as far as reducing the risk of kidney disease. And so that, that's what I right. mean by target. But I also think it's very important to once sort of identifying that group to engage them in the development of the intervention. And that's why some of my more recent work has been in partnership mm-hmm. with those groups of individuals who may be most affected by some of these conditions. Mm-hmm. Again, in my case, with a focus on kidney disease. Yeah. And the, um, the research that you just pointed to, it's so important to be able to tease out race and ethnicity from socioeconomic status and when they go together and when they don't, because there's Absolutely. so many studies that do not as I set up their sample in a way that they can, and yeah. you can learn different different things. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite study that you've done? Yeah. Well, it's hard to pick a favorite. I um, know. But, <laughs> but I would say because I think it really culminates a lot of the epidemiologic work as well as some of the qualitative research work that my colleagues and I have been able to do. Probably my favorite study is the one that we have ongoing right now, which is the five plus nuts and beans for kidneys study. It is one of the studies of our Center for Health Equity here at Johns Hopkins, and it is a dietary intervention study that's focused on African-Americans who have early kidney disease and also have hypertension. And it's allowed for us to really be informed by what we've learned through our epidemiologic work, as well as what we've learned from our uh, community partners as far as, you know, what sort of makes sense and what would really be beneficial mm-hmm. for people who are, who are dealing with both hypertension mm-hmm. and, and kidney disease. And so if I had to pick a favorite, I'd uh-huh. have to say it's that one. Well, it's great that a favorite <laughs> can be one you're still doing right now. So you've talked a little bit about structural factors, Mm -hmm. and then there's individual choices and access. And how do we move away from just focus on individuals, whether they're buying the right groceries or not kind of Mm -hmm. thing, to more structural factors that would have more impact, but retaining our ability to actually intervene on individuals, people's lives? Yeah. So I think think it's um, it's kind of a million-dollar question in many ways. So I would say really working with those individuals that are most affected by the structures, right, to then try to move the dial on the structures. And I think part of our challenge is is that we, certainly in the academic space, we work in these silos where we're not reaching out to and sort of trying to partner with people who are in positions to actually make structural changes. And by that, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm speaking of people who are in positions of their policymakers or their healthcare system leaders mm-hmm. or they're in industry. So when we think about, you know, our work when it comes to healthy food access, thinking about, you know, grocers, what mm-hmm. what is the local kind of food environment look like and where are there opportunities to make structural changes mm-hmm. in that? And what sort of levers do we need to pull on? in order Mm -hmm. to see those changes happen. So to have those of us that are thinking about it from an academic standpoint uh, reach out and partner with those groups, I think, is one important place. And then I think taking the stories of those individuals affected by those structures is a really exciting avenue as well. And that's something we're also trying to do in the context of our current study for those participants who for a number of reasons, weren't able to be a part of our actual intervention study. We're actually inviting them to provide us some insights about their environment that we can then use to reach out to some of these different groups, as That's I alluded so great. to. Yeah. And you mentioned green space earlier. 
Are you looking at all at green space and kidney disease, or you were just talking about that as a possible structural factor? I think that would be a really interesting thing to do in terms of looking at kidney disease. I was speaking of it as a, a general sort of structural factor. I haven't seen that and looked at there's not been much work on physical activity mm -hmm. and kidney disease. I do think that would be a really interesting area, though. And I think there's more to the provision of green space than just it being a place for people to exercise. I think it's also a source of stress reduction. Right, and, and social capital. Uh, and social capital, mm -hmm. exactly. So, so yeah. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. even interesting work out of University of Pennsylvania about green space and crime reduction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you and I are both really interested in racial inequities. Yeah. And a large part of that comes from the history of slavery and the social structures that it didn't just disappear when slavery ended. Yeah. And that a lot of our science is based on that period and people just tinker with it. And one example of that is that when you look at pulmonary function, which is lung function, there is a calculator inside it to change it based on if you're black or white, which is from some racist science at the time that we've pretty much know that shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. But in kidney health, in what's called the glomerular filtration rate, which is a measure of how well kidneys work, also you put in if someone's black or not, mm -hmm. um, which seems to also be problematic since there aren't really biological differences. And since you're our reigning nephrologist in the <laughs> National Kidney Month, I wondered if you could help us understand the science behind that. Yeah, so this is, a, this is an active area of discussion and, I think, consideration. As you mentioned, in that equation, what we use for estimating kidney function, we do have a correction factor, if you will, for if a person is a black race. And so in terms of deriving that correction factor, there was a population of individuals who was relatively racially and ethnically diverse. And what was found was that the group that was of black race did have kind of a, a different curve, if you will, as far as what their kidney function was. And out of that, this correction mm -hmm. factor that we've used has come into play. What we're seeing now is that as, as scholars are taking a more careful look at that is we're be beginning to understand what could be potential consequences of that, including anything that we use in the sort of clinical kidney space anytime we're using that number to guide our treatment pattern. So a classic example would be when we're deciding when to refer a patient for transplantation. Mm -hmm. And so in really just the last couple of years, it's been called into question whether that, that fact that glomerular uh -huh. filtration rate could be swaying us to refer groups of some racial and ethnic backgrounds towards transplantation earlier than, right. than others. And so it really is an active area right. of investigation and sort right. of query. And so, you know, I think the discussions around that are going to be ongoing. Right. Wow. That's fascinating. Well, one of the questions we like to ask all our guests, as you know, mm -hmm. is what's one of the best pieces of advice you've ever gotten? Oh, goodness, so many. Um, <laughs> um, I think uh, on a personal level, one that has stuck with me since I was pretty young, it's a quote, actually, that I keep in my office, and that is, to try is to risk failure, not to try is to guarantee it. Mm. So I think the best example of that is thinking about something that I read a couple years ago, and that was uh, an investigator, she's an academic, who actually tried to achieve, as she mm -hmm. referred to it, um, 100 rejections hmm. in a year. And I thought, huh, that's, that's interesting. thought, I'll try it. Right. And so, so I've actually been keeping a tracker um, <laughs> and trying to get to 100 rejections. And I think what that does is it forces you to go for things that mm -hmm. you might not have otherwise have gone for. Mm -hmm. So that's been really helpful. And you've been so successful. Well, so that's clearly working. You're kind. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
I would say that's one. And then one more, I think, relevant to my research, I was advised early on that people should study something that really perplexes them and and even better if they study something that angers them. Mm. And the advice I was given was that if it's something that you're really upset by, you'll never grow tired of of Uh working on it. Uh And so I think working in the area that I have been focusing on, which, as I said, I view as a a matter of justice, I don't imagine I'll grow tired of it. No. And there's unfortunately so much work to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Well... Deidre, before we go, is there anything you'd particularly like to promote? <laughs> always. <laughs> so, uh, oh, yeah, you can always follow me on Twitter. Um, yeah, at the Center for Health Equity, we have a new and improved website. And so I really would invite anyone who's interested in the activities that we have ongoing at the center, which many of them are available online. And uh, yeah. That's great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Deidre, for sharing your work. Thank it's you. It's been fabulous to talk to you about it check out our website for this podcast, nursing.jhu.edu backslash aging fast and slow for the articles and resources and websites referenced in this episode. And we invite you to add to the conversation by tweeting at aging center. In the next episode, we are talking to Stephen Johnston about innovations to help us reimagine aging. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend rate it, or write us a review. To all researchers listening, are you developing a behavioral intervention trying to figure out how to advance it through the research pipeline to get it funded and written about? Join the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing Center for Innovative Care and Aging on June 8th for a day of learning best practices and workshopping ideas on how to fund, test, and develop behavioral interventions. We also have an online portion that you can do anytime, even in your pajamas at midnight. For more information, contact agingcenter at jhu.edu. Special thanks to Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design, Erica Hornstein for producing this series, Florentina Kostake for technical expertise, Tim Carl for web design, and Sydney Logan for marketing. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow.